You go down this cliff, go left down the cliff, yeah. left, and then just tumble for a while, and then you should be there. My truth is a truth <laughs> that you will never understand. Private ownership is one single individual giving free light. Doesn't that tell you that your system is more akin to authoritarian dictatorship? Is a D. How come you can buy our house when it's our house and we live there? Just when these American citizens needed their rights the most, their government took them away. The rights aren't rights if someone could take them away. They have every man in a straitjacket. To leave a country is like breaking out of jail, and to enter a country is like going through the eye of a needle. I don't know if you've noticed, but our two-party system is a Polish looking in the mirror at itself. Shout out! Revolution! Shout out! The war must rise up! Police Academy essentially opens up policing to the citizens. It's a pretty anarchic idea for an 80s movie. Not only go on strike, but we need to fire the bosses. This whole you getting paid more, doing less work thing, it's, it's not working out, Steve. Welcome, welcome to the Three Left Show. I'm your host, Dan Platt, live in the studio, Grand Street Community Arts. With me is... Hello, I am the co-host, Michael Walsh, and this program covers news issues and anything of interest from a radical and revolutionary left perspective for the curious or the committed, promoting a post-capitalist present and future via direct democracy in a commons economy, discussing the means and ends of a multi-tendency left that is, I- that is of itself and for itself, meaning point of socialism, anarchism, and ecology. We proudly wave the flags of the three lefts. Uh, so, um, the AP has called it for Biden. Breaking news. Catholic Pope, final, or Catholic what? president. We finally have a president who answers to the Pope. <laughs> well, we already had one. Kennedy. Oh, right. I forgot about Kennedy. That was the big one. Somewhat, you don't know your American history. Um, I'm young. Yes. Yes. Yeah, you little Zoomer. <laughs> anyway. Uh, I've collected some Facebook posts. Uh, they're not actually from the last week. They're from various times, but our comments. I was trying to bring up one from Glenn Greenwald, which was commenting on the Biden coalition being neoliberals, neocons, Lincoln Project, yeah. um, just the worst kind of people. It's still corporate control. Um, many, many people are, if not anti-capitalist, anti-corporate power. And so that's kind of the most popular sentiment among many many people i mean if like say the green party like we wouldn't say we're socialists but we're definitely like put out that we're anti-corporate right which wasn't gaining us a lot of friends on our left or people (laughs) that we would like to be a working class left-wing party you know using socialism using the s word not just saying we're against corporate power because that's not a vision for the future. That's just saying, like, what are you, just antitrust? You know, you're anti-monopoly, like Zephyr Teach Out? You know, that's not enough. That's not uh, being uh, structural or whatever. So, let's see. There is... So, yeah, if you want Glenn Greenwald, uh, paragon of uh, virtue and... Pro, uh, a little. Well, he's worked very hard. You know, he just quit The Intercept. So, there's a lot of hullabaloo about that. I'm not going to... We don't need to deal with that right now. But... He makes those kind of observations about, uh, well, yes, we did have an election, you know, uh, workers, you, you know, please go to your polling stations. Uh, 
and and there's plenty of meme meme to to go around. So, um, but I wanted to share. Uh, he moved a, a socialist organizer or member of the socialist party around here. Actually, I think it was DSA, but doesn't matter. Uh, he moved out west or Midwest. His name is Miguel, and this was a comment that he made a whole year ago, actually. Um, but it was basically kind of with the Democratic primary ramping up. Uh, socialists in North America and Europe should question whether the prevailing strategy of throwing our lot in with progressive liberals and moderate social democrats is in fact a pragmatic political choice or a failed orientation that is alien us from what we would consider a class base. It looks like we're trying our resurgent, tying our resurgent movement, you know, that socialism is slightly more popular or those more millennials and zoomers that are for it. Uh, to the dream of a progressive alliance that can successfully defend and extend social democratic gains within the neoliberal state, because uh, that's what we have, while building little capacity to survive independently, let alone pursue revolutionary aims once this project definitely crashes, which you could say, uh, well, I would argue that since Bernie threw in the towel, right. that was it crashing. And because because all of these this progressive alliance could do was file right behind neoliberals yeah. uh, and, and neocons, even the, the war criminals of the Bush era. Uh, oh, here's Glenn Greenwald. If Biden wins, that's going to be the power structure, a Democratic Party fully united with neocons, Bush Cheney operatives, CIA, FBI, NSA, Wall Street and Silicon Valley presenting itself as the only protection against fascism. And much of the left will continue marching behind it. Oof. So this show presupposes that we not do that. Um, <laughs> now, I put a question to the left unity discussion group that um, it wasn't. A, it was a question in the form of a post that someone in Boston who used to live in Albany, and he was basically hating on the Green Party for sucking. So it's like, your campaigns have always been terrible. Oh, you know, basically relevant in our failure okay. uh, or the fact that we didn't do well or at least as well as uh, last cycle. Um, although historically we've done as well as we've usually done both in 08 and 2012. Um, okay. so we're just knocked back a decade as far as results. Um, but that's just voting people voting against Republicans in mass <laughs> and not for a positive vision, uh, or voting for the left. Again, I just repeat. You know, like we're being blamed for working within a neoliberal state or right. a capitalist election system, and that many people recognize the election system sucks. If people like, you know, agree when I say like you, that, or you you seem surprised the election system sucks. <laughs> um, maybe we should un, un mess uh, mess with it a little bit. Yeah. Um, now uh, you want to mention uh, you. Could you mention your uh, plan? Of course. Yes. So I have, so I have finally done the big Facebook announcement. Just on Facebook. Just on Facebook. I, but that's where I want to start. Yeah. I announced my run for Congress. I am planning to run with the Green Party for the Congress to represent Albany, Schenectady, Troy, Saratoga, and the rest of the. Capital. 20, the capital district, the New York State's 20th congressional district. And I'm running on the single issue platform of ranked choice voting. Cause I think that ranked choice voting is the change to the system that can help allow third parties to actually flourish in this country. The first past the post system creates 
a corrupt two-party duopoly where there's just two parties that go back and forth and nothing challenges the two parties as a whole except ranked choice voting might be able to. So. Well, we can we can see a, a case study of that with Maine. Well, um, yeah. Let's see. It's being probably it's going to be presupposed that Susan Collins is losing her seat uh, because well, didn't of it. How we get five percent in Maine, which is higher than any other state. That would the, be yeah. That would probably be it too. Now, five percent would actually give us more clout yeah. uh, in various states, depending on the rules, and the rules are made by the duopoly. Um, but of course, it isn't winning, um, and running to win means. Having a different election system, really. Yeah. Um, I do not want to over- undercut the sentiment. This is the reform that we can get a lot, a lot of people behind. Yeah. Um, a Green Party organizer in North Carolina, Antonio Nedge, uh, he, understanding the, well, actually, it's kind of, it's not, a, it's not to downplay RCV, uh, understanding the limited tactical benefits of it, of this policy, ranked choice voting, in an archaic winner-take-all bourgeois electoral system, meaning it isn't fundamentally changing the structure, but it is creating openings uh, for us to be more ser- uh, run seriously or at least for voters to take us seriously. Yeah. Uh, because really, like, that's where it's like, well, it seems to be on them to feel comfortable about right. it, not whether what we change what we're doing. Uh, and party candidates from the left, so uh, it, it's kind of a weird sentence here. So, Literally, it's uh, talking about how ranked choice voting – it presupposes that you vote for your third party first, and then you vote for the Democratic Party second, yeah. so that way they don't lose against the Republicans. However, I see it slightly different. I would personally rank all the third parties first before going on to the Democratic Party and ranking the Democratic Party second to last behind the Republican Party. Right. It's a question of who we're really working to appeal to. Um, liberal progressive, latte sipping, uh, hybrid drivers, or actual working people who are going to want to vote third party, but just don't want their, want their vote to actually matter. Exactly. Or to, for that number to be large enough to feel like it was worth doing. Uh, cause when it's 1% or less, like in most states, you know, how he did terribly, uh, mostly, you know, because, yeah. you know, Democrat interference and complete black polling, um, almost blacklisting where even lefties would not mention, uh, the campaign. And that's what, that was, was truly infuriating. And then they'll say we ran a terrible campaign. Like right. you didn't even mention us. You didn't even acknowledge our existence. A campaign depends on outreach. Yeah. And if you wouldn't allow outreach to occur by basically banning green party people from posting or acting out in public, out news outlets, both local and national, would only cover us in the last week when everybody's made up their mind. This is what they're usually doing. Yeah. They do this every cycle. They will cover us in the last week or so. Say, oh, there's also a Green Party candidate. Or when they're covering the race, they'll do the most insidious. They know they're doing it on purpose. They basically say, uh, like with Steve Greenfield, our congressional candidate, um, South of here, um, and lives in New Paltz, uh, they would say he's running on his party's line. Um, just erasing the Green Party, we're not even mentioning what party. And they can do that. It's within their legal rights to do that, to write how they want it, to frame how they want it, and thus fake news, right? Yeah. Um, corrupt media establishment that holds water for the system, or at least what is normal, um, what people are expecting. No, no, no. I was... <laughs> Wait, read the Peter's 
Okay. Yes, that's funny. This whole weekend will just be photos of Libs going to brunch, right? <laughs> <laughs> that's our co-chair of the state party, by the way. So um, we definitely lost our line. But it, if the rule change didn't happen, we would have retained it. Right. Because we got 80000 We needed 50000 to the old rules, but we needed double 80000 oh. And that's why. And Como knew this. Uh, he knew that only the working family party would survive. And the conservative party. And he just, right. And he gave, and that was the intention. Yeah. This was uh, their plan all along. Um, it, it's truly insidious that they get away with this, and everyone just seemed like, you know, shrugs their shoulders, like, yeah, whatever. Yeah. And, oh, yeah, and it's for the sake. Getting rid of the illegit, he used the, like, legitimate parties. Framing is so Orwellian to do this. And it's for the sake of the public financing system that we'll have in New York. Because... The concern is we don't want to waste taxpayer money. We don't want it costing too much. And tax, and this is like the rhetoric that Mr. Democrat Como is using, Mr. Progressive, anti-Trump, <laughs> totally like him though, in every Yay. way, uh, is, well, people don't want to see their money going to illegitimate parties. <sighs> and that's, yeah, yeah, yeah. And, 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 and worse, like the, the, I think the way, the way they're writing it, it will only, uh, matter in primaries right so it's like well, we don't have primaries we don't need them really we're not yeah. big enough we don't have enough people jockeying for our line um we just want to run candidates and if we yeah. do run run one we just pick the right person you just want a warm body in the seat well we want an ally a comrade that's it's not true. about yeah, the person yeah, it's about true. the person being in a class yeah um, which or in this in our in the green party's case usually an activist of some type uh, our winners are usually the people who are not actually activists, but actually like they're a nurse, they're this, they're 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 a newly converted lefty, hmm. uh, like Christine Elms in um, South Glens Falls. Uh, she gave up her seat because she had like a personal crisis. Oh. Then, uh, but she was very eff- uh, effective, and um, in a small town, very small town. But that's where we win. Um, where a, few, uh, a week's worth of door knocking is really enough. Yeah. And, but we did, we definitely did a lot of door knocking and she worked hard. That, um, the reforms that the Democrats are passing in New York, uh, which apparently is better than referendums, you know, the fact that we don't have every crazy little rule change happening to our constitution. Oh, but it's really just, or rather that politics is done through patronage networks. You need mm. to be big enough or rich enough or, have resources to be a patron, to pay politicians to do what you want or to um, be friends with them or help their campaign or to be able to organize people, right? If you organize enough people, right. But Hey, it's uh, it was, it was what worked in the past as far as like, this was how more constituencies could be represented that they organized into either an ethnic group or an identity and they pooled their money. And we haven't done that by class in a very long time. Uh, it switched to identity, meaning black or Irish or whatever, right. and uh, or gay. But these populations are not equal in size or wealth. And that's, that's what's different from the past. Uh, there's so many things we could cover while... Oh, yeah, so I was... Um, on Wednesday, I was looking at my library and a few things. Uh, number one, so I'm just paraphrasing, summarizing. I looked at my Wall Street, Occupy Wall Street book by Mark Bray, published by Zero Books, called Translating Anarchy. And I looked at the kind of what went wrong with the GA, um, chapter. 
and he mentions uh, was termed by an intersectional author theorist liberal libertarianism huh. which is the tendency of rejecting all hierarchy or coercion okay kind of forgetting that if you're going to stop coercion from happening oppression you kind of need to oppress someone you need to break a window you need to take some uh, requisitions from property right. you need to fight or kick someone out of office like oh no no we want to we don't want anyone to lose you know uh, everyone needs to be a winner well does that include the people who are already winning the people right. who are already making others suffer uh, through yeah. consolidation of wealth and stuff Another was a book that I bought uh, while in Toronto, but it doesn't could bought anywhere. Uh, Full Spectrum Resistance, mm-hmm. and it was part one. Uh, I don't know what part two has, but part one is kind of the full, very easy to understand. It's not loaded down with theory, uh, but guide to organizing. Okay. Uh, particularly resistance movements and social movements that are in character resisting, not working with the system, resisting the system, because that is how actual change happens. So I think the mindset we all need to be going with forward, uh, if you aren't already, is to think of yourself as a resistor, and, and the questions are, what can I be doing to resist with others? What needs to be resisted happening in my town, community, whatever, um, and how to do it, whether it's through di- some form of direct action or mutual aid. Um, okay. though mutual aid itself isn't really counter power resisting. So there's, uh, through the rest of the year, we'll be doing, um, what I call left wing strategy tour, which okay. is we're going to go through a, a bunch of different areas of strategy and discuss each of them in turn. There's the list of them right there. But, Ooh. uh, th- this episode, we're going to finish up our discussion of architecture. What I was trying to bring up with the Facebook page here um, was the saved post that you shared with me this morning. Oh, yeah. So, But you could also just read it yeah, if you can read it. bring me, it up. Just and I'll react to it as a it. someone who went to architecture school, which I want to... Yeah, yeah, you just go first. Uh, so it's from the page uh, Princess Cora, a uh, picture of the, I think, the prin- Disney princess from Snow White, which is named Cora, I think. Yeah. Uh, but it makes me think of Cora the Avatar. Yeah. So... So it goes on, um, over the past few months, I have asked a male architect for ideas and drafts for the renovation of a farmhouse, and at every turn, I am stunned by his utter disregard for any cleaning-related concerns. For example, he is very into the idea of having a living room, a big, non-openable window near the ceiling, which, granted, looks pretty, like having a piece of blue sky when you raise your eyes, but immediately I'm like, with a high ceiling... How will I clean this? You can't open it, so you have to clean both sides separately, and you can't reach the other side. I'll need a tool with an absurdly long telescopic handle, he says. Uh, He says, a stepladder. I'm like, but I'll need to carry it by myself to the living room in the front of the house every time. So? So a very tall stepladder is heavy, and and it will be hard not to get dirty water dripping down the hall. He reacts like he can't believe he is being asked to bring the concept of dirty soap water into his grand designs. Like, these are base trifling considerations, when to me it's a crucial factor in the decision to add this decorative window. Similarly, we both agree on leaving most of the wood beams exposed because they're old and beautiful. Wait, wait, can't, uh, let's, yeah. let's take it one piece at a time. One piece at a time. So, the clear story, it's called a clear story window. 
uh, when you have a window that's not like eye level, okay. but higher. Uh, or it's mostly, but it's usually referring to a window that's abutting the, where the ceiling meets the, the ceiling meets the wall. Hmm. Um, this will come up in the later parts of this thread, but the, something that's kind of mentioned in these rants, but not like something that's in the architect's mind is cost. I think when it comes, when my interactions with potential or current clients is cost. Okay. Can't cost that much. But to do things right, like to have an operable window versus an inoperable one, is a matter of cost. So he's like, maybe it's like, well, this doesn't, what she's not including in this rant is maybe he said, this doesn't, this can't be covered by your budget. It has to be a fixed window. Or uh, also the trifling concern to like maybe it is a matter of he's a man he hasn't cleaned windows before right but to me like my mindset is well i have clean windows but i'm thinking complaining about like i'm going to drip water but it's like well it's also a matter of like, how many how many times do you expect to clean this window right. i think in his mind it's twice a year so it's like it's a chore once like twice a year when you do the whole house clean right um, depending on the materials you choose you may not have to clean often right you could choose materials where you do have to clean off, and, and that's a uh, mistake of modern design or minimalism. Well, the point of minimalism is that there's less to clean, or um, it's a color where it, uh, if there's dust on it, you don't notice. It doesn't matter. Or if you want it, you know, if you clean it, you clean it once a year. That, that's when you dust and get everything down. But if you need everything to be perfectly pristine and, you know, it's like the architect is kind of maybe going to shrug and go, like, that's not my problem. That's your neuroses. Right. Now, of course, the designer's job should be maybe to design around a, neuro- a neuroses um, and not put the person in a position where they have to solve their neuroses, though it might be a nice. Uh, but it's like, okay, architectural service plus therapeutic services. Okay. <laughs> um, but that, um, yeah, so go on to the next part. So then the beams. next part is, uh, similarly, we both agree on leaving most of the wood beams exposed because they're old and beautiful. But when I ask if we ought to insulate in such a way as to cover every other one, so the remaining ones are farther apart and harder for spiders to use them as ready-made anchors for their webs, he just looks disgusted, like, I'm talking about architecture and you bring up spider webs. At this point, I start to entertain the idea that men make horrible architects. You design someone's house to give them a nice, convenient space to live in, not to make their life more difficult. A man who has never used a sponge in his life should not be allowed to graduate from architect school, and that's the end of it. So that's the first... Yeah, so let me respond that insulating every other beam, I'm not sure what that's supposed to accomplish. Um, as a, as a, someone who's taken the coursework and whatever, it's like, you would need to insulate all of them. So maybe it's just like, well, that's a absurd suggestion. Maybe you want to insulate all of them, but again, budget maybe can't do that. Or we don't need to insulate the beams. We should insulate, you insulate the roof. The roof is insulated. So maybe he's rolling his eyes at that. Maybe, I mean, he's being smug and he's not completely explaining and that's his right. fault. And then he is uh, well, not a great guy. This uh, so, is uh, talking mostly. About- and also, why don't you want spiders that would uh, cut down your insect population? in your home. Well, a lot of people don't like spiders, but I'm sure. thinking about this from the perspective that they are, they're talking about male architects. I would prefer to talk about uh, capitalist architectures and the idea and making it instead of being like a male female issue, it's more of an issue of uh, the general uh, thought that I'm getting from this is that they're complaining about people who are just designing a space to look pretty 
and are not thinking about it being functional and convenience and a place to live in and how people who don't have to worry about the upkeep of a house and are more worried about yeah and are more worried about the aesthetic of the house than the amount of effort it's going to take in the upkeep and i think that that is a legitimate concern it definitely is um so I was just playing devil's advocate yeah. there of like, maybe that's what's in his head. That he's not a complete uh, a-hole. Um, now, yes, there's the professionalization of architecture. So like my, my comment on that is, what did I send to you in the, um, I think, yes. So I wrote back, uh, you can read, oh yeah, yeah. <laughs> it's all true, but like the comment about tea that will come later, like this is like, there's, um, uh, listicles on like modern architecture sucks right. um, and spilling the tea. There's a surface level analysis of what's wrong. Either it's men or because it's modern. Like the Marxists we are, I would be adamant that modern professional architecture can be good, but capitalism doesn't incentivize good. That's why I mentioned the cost thing that like there's so many things people would want to do, but budgets and mortgage and bank lending doesn't allow for that. Plus, then the buildings that are really super expensive are these cash cow um, real estate ventures uh, and whatnot. Right. What was the other thing that um, about modernism in particular? Oh, yes. I want to mention that I went to an architecture school that was pretty unique hmm. in that it had extremely and it was the dean's policy, uh, despite that, I think later on he did have some kind of Me Too uh, scandal. Uh, and we now have a woman dean uh, at the college who also then was treated like uh, crap. Um, so I don't I don't know the particulars, but again, Me Too kind of stuff. Right. Then, um, but he made the school as diverse as possible because the school is diverse as possible. I went to City College of New York, particularly because, A, CUNY system is cheaper than the SUNY, the state system. Okay. Um, it was like a quarter of the price, but uh, at the time. Then uh, also uh, it was hearing that the school was 11% white. And it's like, oh, yeah, that's that's where I want to be. And because um, I don't like feeling like I, I don't like I've never felt like I've been the majority. I've gone to urban schools with white minority populations. So... I wanted to keep that trend going, and I actually wanted to be on a diverse campus. Some state campuses, you know, they or other schools, they sell themselves on like we have a diverse student population. We have ten Chinese foreign exchange students, you know, right. and it's like, uh, how about a uh, hundred? Right. Uh, and they're actually like a mixture of immig- uh, fresh off the boat um, transfers and people who or live in Chinatown. Right. And and I have both. Uh, not to mention all the different, uh, nationalities, ethnicities. The, uh, the professors were half women, uh, half, um, foreign born. You know, I had an Italian, an Iranian, a Spaniard. Um, they all had different perspectives and the women did as well, but also like, well, they're also still trained in the capitalist system. So right. it's like, there's some things that like a woman's touch doesn't really mean anything, uh, when it comes to, good design it's just there's good there's good and there's bad and there's what incentivizes and what it takes for things to be good or bad sustainable or whatever so keep going with that thread why is so it goes on my mom is an architect and i can confirm male architects are overwhelmingly pretentious douches oof 
Uh, I'm currently studying interior design and I've been involved in the field in and of for a long time. I can't even begin to tell you how many people live in architecturally designed houses where the architect is more interested in winning awards so he can upgrade his Maserati than designing something humans can actually live in. Whenever I see fancy architecture, my first thought is nearly always, that is gonna suck to, or that is gonna be terrible to heat. Closely followed by, that staircase looks terribly unsafe. I don't understand why so many fancy architects don't seem to consider that people would have to live in that house. If you're an architect and people don't actually want to live and spend time in your house, aren't you a failed architect? Then, I live in a country where it rains 265 days a year, and it irritates me immensely how many modern buildings locally have been clearly been designed by architects who either don't know this or don't care. Why would you design a flat-roofed building in this climate? There are so many new buildings here that look fine when it's sunny, but are gray and depressing when it rains, and so many slightly less new buildings which are streaked with rust and mold because they've been rained on constantly for the last 10 years, and the architect never considered what that would do to them. Architects need to look at traditional building techniques. Houses in England have step roofs for a reason. Houses in Israel have flat roofs for a reason. I've stepped you, it's steep. Steep. I've seen what English weather does to a flat roof. Best architecture disaster remains the French Library Bibliotheca Nationale. This is a different comment. Oh, this is, well, they're all yeah. different. And it's like the building is slowly sinking into the ground because the architect didn't take into account the weight of the books. Now, that, that's a Victorian-era building, by the way. Okay. So before you probably have the engineers calculating well, yeah. what are called the live loads. Mm. So the dead load is the weight of the building, and the live load is the weight that you expect to exist in the space. Yes. Yeah. Um, it's pretty important if it's an industrial space where you actually, like, there's going to be a two-ton right. load in there. Uh, otherwise, it's like the load will be 50 people. Well, that's negligible right. to the calculation. Uh, but the number of books is a particular set weight. Uh, so, yeah, so there's a lot of things there. Can you scroll so, up a little bit? I wanted to comment on... The rain one? Yeah, know. yeah. So uh, it was in my education that, you know, my diverse uh, set of education, that uh, we it was commented on when we were doing the, the, the survey of modern architecture. And that when going through all of these masterpiece houses... Uh, it was almost like, not a mantra, but it was a pattern I picked up and laughed at and found hilarious that, like, the roof always leaked it needed to be, and it needed to be renovated later. Uh, this is because of the flat roofs. Now, flat roofs are never completely flat now, but any flat roofs today are just a slightly pitched roof. Hmm. Um, but, of course, nothing beats a high, steeply pitched roof with a 45-degree angle. A uh, okay. roof is like a hat, you know. A roof is the shelter of the house. Uh, and if... The best, better houses are the ones that create a sense of shelter, or the ones where, like, the top floor is the roof. Okay. And there are a lot of modern buildings that can actually do this, uh, with, like, say, a curved roof or something like that. Uh, so there's the weathering, there's the rain, uh, things that just weren't taught until, like, it was clear that all of these modern masterpieces had leaky roofs. Uh, oh, yes. Oh, no, no, no. And it wasn't just that. Actually, anything Gary does is also... Uh, Frank Gehry, star architect, also has leaky things because, I mean, that, that, that's the stuff that looks like oh. crumpled up paper, by the way. Um, then, because he used 
uh, CAD, uh, computer assisted design and all that. And that's stuff that you can only do with computers. So you could, there, there, there's a sense that like, you know, now we have technology that allows for certain designs. We need to make use of it. And especially if you want to show off, uh, other star architect, Tom Maine, which produced an over cost, over budget of building for Cooper union in New York. Uh, which practically uh, caused them to need to charge tuition for the first time oh, in their wow. 150 year history. Um, cause it costs like 9 million and 3 million over. Oh, wow. And, uh, or it was supposed to cost nine, but it costs like 13 instead. I forget what. But anyway, he was giving a, the lecture at school at the, the lecture series. Okay. And, um, it was at the end. Oh yeah, 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 that, uh, you know, he goes through some of the sustainable features, which are really paltry. Like the green roof is a, uh, eight foot wide strip of the roof and so on and so on. And you know, when the professors kind of asked him, like, so what, what came, what did you, what was your methodology for like getting the sustainable design elements? Like, how did you factor that in? And he said, Oh, we had a consultant for that. Oh, like we hired somebody. I didn't think about it at all. We hired someone to think about it. And of course, like, and then we fit it in based on my grand vision. So yes, snobby, pretentious, uh, dweeb. Um, and and of course all the, you know, professors and all of us who are trying to learn how to actually be good designers are like, well, we don't want to be like this guy. Right. Um, and professors were like, "Ugh, what a you know, what a jerk," and um, and that's you know, and it's like, and they understand this is what's wrong with the profession. Oh yeah, and another thing about my school was everyone had to be practicing architect. Hmm. A lot of architecture schools, the professors are not practice practitioners hmm. or minority are, uh, or they're not practicing at the current moment. But it really helps because then they're in the milieu of what the profession is doing. Right. They're actually working with people and problems and so on. And they can show off to their students what they're working on at a particular time. Do you want me to go on? Uh, Yes. So it goes on. My high school was an all glass cube wall. Oh yeah. yeah, yeah. This one actually, yeah, this one comes up because you, the current high school is actually has these elements. And so I kind of wish my high school is a glass cube. I kind of wish I, I actually spoke up about the designs, but it's like, it's set. It's not going to change. Yeah. No one's going to want to change it. Um, especially when the rationale for the, some of the designs of like all the hallways are perfectly straight. So they're easier to watch. Why security systems? And I'm oh. like, yeah, more of a panopticon. Great. Take all the character out of the current high school. You so know, it's for so security, you know, Yeah, my high school was a glass cube wall place designed by a famous architect, but the, but the custom ordered and shaped glass was from a defunct company, and less than five years later, there were wooden planks replacing the glass floor tiles and wall panels in several places from normal wear and tear, as well as a hurricane. The school was expensive to clean, and the teachers had to put up curtains in all the rooms where everyone in the hallways could just see into the classroom, and people in the hallway would stare in the classrooms for fish aquariums. If architecture doesn't consider the consequences of a space being used and maintained over time, it's ultimately more hubris than art. Hmm. Yeah, usually there's some conceptual diagram of transparency, but then... There's never an, a question of like why should the walls be transparent with classrooms, especially when it makes the school shooter's job so much easier. No, I joke. <laughs> but um, the 
thing I wanted that brings to mind is that when I, I like the design of a unisex safe space bathroom that includes a window so that you can see in the, um, not the stalls, of course, but I mean like the, the just the, the room itself. Hmm. So that if someone is being harassed or cornered or let's say to assuage conservatives, uh, fears of the transsexual, uh, trans person <sighs> who is, uh, up to no good, uh, which doesn't really exist, but let's say, uh, you want to make it, you know, make them feel better about it. Uh, have a little window so you can see in the bathroom so that someone passing by can look in. It doesn't have to be a big window, definitely not the whole wall. There would still be blind spots or whatever because that sh- should exist in bathrooms. Hmm. But another part of design is uh, what does accessible design look like, especially when you take into the new kinds of disabilities and identities that we now acknowledge, like being on the spectrum. Right. Uh, for that, to make a building accessible is to have a room that is quieter than the rest, where if someone's being overstimulated, they can go and chill out. Uh, but this also then helps everybody to have a chill-out space. Mm. Now, most traditional-slash-older architecture has some kind of space like that. A little courtyard, a void, as it's usually called. Some modern buildings have this by accident, like leftover space, but that is not a dedicated, intentional um, to have a separate room that is quote unquote safe, you know, padded or at least not wider, extra soundproofing, uh, colors, so on and so on. Uh, is there more to that post? No, all the other stuff was more meta. There was, well, there was two uh, listicles of like why you hate modern architecture, and well, then they someone had, uh, links embedded, but it's a screenshot, so I couldn't. Yeah, yeah, click yeah. Them. But I, I can tell you what like would be in them. Um, so okay, then the first one is um, all of Frank Lloyd Wright's houses had leaky roofs and were basically uninhabitable. I wouldn't say uninhabitable, but I think that's probably referring to the fact that he was such a control freak. Like wow. the design was con- to- was total, and he was quite the dictator when it came to like mm-hmm. this is where the chairs go, and he didn't like people moving the chairs. And so, like in some design, some versions of his houses, he would nail the chairs down. Oh wow! Mm-hmm. And, and the other one is just called "Why You Hate Contemporary Architecture." But it, it's it's like saying "Why do you hate Mondays?" Capitalism, baby. Yeah. Um, but, <laughs> but really listicles like that aren't, you know, doing Marxist analysis. Right. Um, but what we can do is an anarchist analysis. Ooh. Um, actually let's, let's, for the last uh, bit of this hour, I just want to return to the story we event, uh, did two weeks ago about Trump's executive order. Okay. Um, let's see if Biden reverses it. Probably <laughs> not. Um, Democrats like Biden, moderates don't really, they want to move forward. They don't want to look back, as right. Obama said. Uh, we're not going to undo anything that the Republican really did terribly. I mean, they, they, they undo, did some things, but again, executive right. orders are just then undone by the next fascist in office. Oh yeah, and the meme of uh, Steven Universe, like get rid, get get out of here, old fascist. Yeah, new fascist. <laughs> I remember that one. Let's see. So I'm going to the Forbes story about the Trump executive order okay. mandating classical architecture. Style is the answer to everything. That's the opening line of a Charles Bukowski poem written in '72, which wanders towards. A few particular observations. Not many have style. Not many can keep style. I have seen dogs with more style than men. Donald Trump has style and has pursued its development for decades towards a final widely broadcasted presidential act. 
Though style, he has become a compliment red-tied anti-Gaduva. All the town's eyes are on him to look away as Taboo virtually feeds on him. There is a yearning relief among his opponents that the time might come maybe next year, yes, it's coming, when his legacy will be regulated to the history books and the old newspaper clippings. Some have warned that he will be televised, channeled into a surreal but profitable talking head that will uh, captivate his base for years to come. But beyond the dubious stability of his border wall, we haven't reckoned with the possibility that Trump might leave behind more permanent architectural symbols to his administration. That is until Tuesday, when Architectural Record obtained a draft copy of an executive order titled Making Federal Buildings Beautiful Again, an attempt to rewrite the existing guiding principles used by the General Services Admin to determine the design of federal buildings. The mandate would ensure that the classical architectural style shall be the preferred and default style. The future, now of course, this, just because it's a style doesn't mean it's traditional building or traditional design. There's still modern buildings with modern HVAC systems and modern leaky roofs. This shift could not only jeopardize the design quality of billions of dollars worth of state construction, but also extend the ideology of Trump. It's not just Trump, of course, though, because it's not Trump drafting this thing. No. It's not his idea. I mean, he's on board with it. He's doing it. But it's whichever of his cronies. And in this case, the cronies were that civil society art, you know, civil art society. Hmm. And uh, I looked up actually who's on their board. Oh, uh, it's half these traditionally minded architects. By traditional, I just mean neoclassicals. And uh, the other half of the board are former, they're kind of like the uh, revolving door of like uh, Turning Point USA type works. The two of the main board members were former board members on the the victims of communism foundation. Oh, yep. Oh, so, so that, those. that shows what they're, they're really about. Yeah. Like this isn't, why are we fighting for classical architecture or neoclassical neoclassicism? Oh, it's to beat the Mar- cultural Marxism, the Jewish conspiracy, the, the leftists of course. that have taken the liberals who have taken control of our, and we're waging culture war there. Uh, that's why I titled the last, the other episode, architectural culture war. Hmm. So, it is off-putting to pair classical architecture with Trump, not only because classical democratic values often bought heads with his policies, uh, or any uh, duopoly politician. As a developer and brand, Trump has already left an inedible mark of a different kind, towering modernist residences and casinos that share the same gaudy, gold-foiled spirit of his Manhattan penthouse. His border wall reveals a similarly impotent attempt at building big instead of beautiful, course why would a wall want to be beautiful and unlike this recent neoclassical pipe dream uh these displays of power and wealth are authentic products of the man who now sits in the Oval office nonetheless the legacy of classical architecture has been revived as much by authoritarian regimes as by democratic revolutionaries lafont might have laid out washington dc with the aspirations of a nascent democracy but one of the first revivals of this ancient architecture was brought about by the cardinals, popes, and oligarchs of Renaissance Italy. Classical architecture has continued to be deployed toward the aggrandizement of powerful institutions, finding unforgettable associations with totalitarianism, most notably under Nazi regime's chief architect, Albert Schwier. Lenny Riefenstahl's uh, 38 film Olympia, this is the Nazi propagandist oh, filmmaker, yeah. uh, or at least, you know, she was employed, uh, is set against the backdrop of one of the most lasting monuments, the neoclassical Olympia Stadium in 
Berlin. The film regarded as one of the greatest of all time for its technical innovations. And of course, it's always the fascists or the, the racists that are doing the technical innovations. But there's actually a whole army of people making such innovations that are then uncredited yeah. and uncelebrated. Building historian Paul Gilroy, in his book Against Race, Imagining Political Culture Beyond the Color Line, notes how Hitler exploited the creative and stylistic aspect of his politics and brought this creativity to life through newly available technologies such as radio and television. Of course, he wasn't the only one. Trump has already achieved dominance in our media channels across several scales. Of course, he doesn't do it alone. It's our celebrity culture. It's, it's, it's everything about neoliberalism, about symbol and substance that makes this all possible. This project is set to be carried out through a fascist blueprint, forceful deployment of repurposed and contorted historical symbols. According to the Architectural Records Report, the draft order argues that the Founding Fathers embraced the classical models of democratic Athens and Republican Rome for the capital's early buildings because the style symbolized the new nation's self-governing ideals. Never mind, of course, that it was just the prevailing style of the day. So more accident. It is the coerced and antagonistic exploitation of these symbols as a mobilizing political force that characterizes the fascist project. It seeks to unearth and fabricate a narrative that can appeal to the masses based on a system that allows only the expression of nationally desired, shared desires. To accomplish this impossible task, you know, unite the country, right. fascism suppresses an infinite web of multicultural differences into a flattened national narrative, thus shuddering individual creativity. And that's why the international style represents the opposite of fascist design or aesthetics. To be clear, the problem with the draft executive order, now, of course, still talking about a draft, it was, I think, signed. But similar distasteful associations between classicism and authoritarianism can be found with the ugly, brutalist, and modernist architecture that Trump mandate would seek to counteract. And not only in that which has been dubbed socialist modernism, so far, the overwhelming majority of federal architecture in the 70-plus years since it was the authority was established, including the headquarters of our favorite three-letter agencies, the IRS, the FBI, and the NSA, have aligned to a cold modernist fragility. These representations are truthful to the workings of the state. Our modern architects and bureaucrats have not lied to us, as they have with in other centuries, with sprawling classical Beaux-Art overhauls. Most GSA buildings have, in their form, been openly a testament to an increasingly secretive, self-contained, and all-seeing state apparatus. Mm. And this way, modern architecture is more honest. They should not uh, represent anything else but the brutality of government institutions that are no longer simply concerned with collecting taxes, but also the details of our personal lives by force. And there's a picture of the NSA headquarters, which is just two big glass boxes. While there is little redemption in touring the sprawling office parks of these agencies, it is still fulfilling to walk under the colonnades of the 19th century neoclassical plantation homes, to tour Renaissance gardens, and even visit old prisons. We find comfort in old monuments when we forget our origins. We show our capability for forgiveness, a contrivable quality that allows us to live a semblance of peace in our old world. However, we should not confuse this longing for classical architecture as a sign that sometime in history, architecture took a wrong turn. The Romantic and classical world did not face the existential dangers of modernity from the destruction of two world wars to the possibility of nuclear fallout. Our architecture has not been classicist classicist because it has been streamlined for global production, made even more effective towards the service of what has always been behind most great architecture, power. 
Now that this power is carried out globally in a connected society, our buildings communicate in uniform and efficient ways the forms that can be transmitted thousands of miles through BIM software. BIM is a type of CAD software. And not through the energy that originally came from the hands of a skilled stonemason. Neoclassical architecture could never find an adequate place in today's world. Posturing a revival of myths to the same rotten impulses that guided Prince Charles to denounce, and that's Prince, that's the, I got the name of the prince wrong. I think I said Prince George. Oh. It's Prince Charles. And he made a speech in the 80s denouncing modern architecture. It wasn't recent. He did. He denounced modern architecture in an infamous speech at the Royal Institute of Architects in 84. It is monarchic when it is an outright fascist and inadequate response to the an ugliness of our own making. Is style the answer to everything? The poet urges us to find it within little things, like herons standing quietly in a pool of water, in the sport of boxing, and even in the act of opening a can of sardines. These are innocent expressions of style, but if history has taught us anything, it's that the stylization of politics is one of the most dangerous indications of totalitarianism. If anything should not have a style, it's the architecture of the American state. Okay. Well, of course, that's kind of like a view from nowhere, kind of like a political right. neutrality yeah. kind of thing, which totally, but it's Forbes, uh, published right. by Forbes. So, but otherwise, it's a good um, poetic essay on it. So okay. that's why I wanted to return to that, because otherwise, my explanations of why this mattered didn't really cut the cloth. Okay. So we'll, uh, we're in the first hour. Yes. Yeah. Where my red line's at. I picture Frank Lloyd Wright while you think I'm Mike Brady. And engineers devour our work and call us crazy. We got rounded specs, but they ain't for looks. It's from staring at our screens and all those history books. We turn an empty space into a world of possibility. Maintaining privacy and tranquility. Graduate from school, about to change the world. But I'm stuck designing thrones with a clockwise swirl. We're architects, I'm a creative flair. Redesigning the world from buildings to chairs. It's a daily grind, but we love what we do. A satisfying job giving you a better view. Lord of the Elmers and King of Scraps. Making models out of paper and bottle caps. I'm a master of BIM, making lines with dashes. Except I lose my mind if Revit crashes. Green is gold and lead is big. Know the golden triangle and learn your trick. Challenge the formula, push the envelope. Put more glazing over here, that looks really dope. We're architects, I'm a creative flair. Redesigning the world from buildings to chairs. It's a daily grind, but we love what we do. A satisfying job giving you a better view. I see in the office just to stay awake. Espresso and Red Bull till I get a stomachache. With our cotton blazers high, we have a sense of style. But to the rest of the world, we just point and smile. I read code books while I'm on vacation. Take pictures of my latest creation. We wear black and gray, but no logos on our threads. So many sleepless nights, we're like the walking dead. We're architects, I'm a creative flair. Redesigning the world from buildings to chairs. It's a daily grind, but we love what we do. A satisfying job giving you a better view. Got so many scales, might as well call me a fish. Does your lawn look boring? I'll design you a dish. Stalker text, no, call them Hollywood actors. Cause they can't deal with general contractors. 
book wasn't clear, so I got these RFIs, clients making changes that we all despise. We got better form than Jordan's jump shot, and designs that function like a million dollar yacht. We're architects, art, creative flair, redesigning the world from buildings to chairs. It's a daily grind, but we love what we do. A satisfying job giving you a better view. I'm an architect. Oh, you mean like Ted Mosby? Welcome back to the Three Left Show, a show that uh, does leftist reading, analysis, and pretty much general radical talk uh, for our lives. See, so, yeah, as I wait for my co-host to come back, an ideological reminder that capitalism is a right-wing position, regardless of positions on authority or culture. To be left is to critique or to be against wage, labor, and capital, holding all power, which is fundamentally unequal, unfair, and destructive to the planet. There is no right answer for any one thing. There are good answers connected to being appropriate. Uh, so welcome back. So we're going to talk about, we're continuing to talk about architecture. And now, since we've kind of hammered on the liberal point of view of architecture or the kind of ways people react to it, uh, with the kind of surface level analysis of like, you know, oh, it's a man. Right. Let's take a look at there's there's an anarchist writer and architect named Colin Ward and this is uh we can start with actually this one from City Lab which is Bloomberg but uh there, there are other sources but this one seemed to be an adequate uh article for it. Uh there's actually a architectural firm of people of color, black people Ooh. uh called, called I forget what they're called. They'll mention it. But they are dedicated to restorative architecture for restorative justice. And their new center, Restore Oakland, provides a home for nonprofits that seek to resolve conflict, reduce incarceration, and empower low-income people. So when we left to say abolish prisons, defund the police, this is the kind of stuff we want to build instead of jails. Uh, so this is written by Sarah Holder in August. Oakland's Restorative Justice Hub wants to redefine public safety. There are more than 3,000 local jails in the U.S. and another few thousand courthouses. In some people's eyes, these institutions are monuments to public safety. To others, they represent forces driving mass incarceration. This fall, a building will open in Oakland's uh, Fruitvale neighborhood that hopes to become a different sort of community landmark, dedicated both to keeping the community safe and to breaking the cycle of poverty and imprisonment. For years, the Ella Baker Center for Human Rights, a local nonprofit focused on community building, reducing incarceration, and the Restaurant Opportunity Center. So these are the kind of two core nonprofits that are okay. base, which fight for fair wages for restaurant workers, collaborated to develop the concept for Restore Oakland, nonprofit hub and community center. In a 20,000 square foot building, a caddy corner from the BART station, so it's on, it's in the next door transit hub. BART is the local train state uh, system okay. uh, of the San Fran area. So Restore Oakland will house local organizations and provide job training and housing assistance of various services uh, that nonprofits do. A fine dining restaurant called Colors, whose mm -hmm. staff will include formerly incarcerated people. A cafe and a kitchen with space for entrepreneurs to run incubators will open on the ground floor. So a food hub as well, kind of. Incubation, business incubation space, which is kind of one of those things that kind of local community economics kind of starts with, like just a place to create community uh, enterprises or local businesses. 
uh, since starting one own business successfully is so difficult. Right. And takes quite a bit of capital, so it takes a lot of those capital costs off. Restore Oakland is named for the restorative justice work that will take place there. This is an approach to dealing with crime that brings together the victim and the wrongdoer to resolve the harm caused outside of court. At least two youth-oriented restorative justice nonprofits, Restorative Justice for Oakland Youth and Community Works West, will do work in the building. Community Works West partners with the Amadana County District Attorney's Office to divert cases involving people aged 15 to 24 into community conferencing and have them meet the people they've harmed before charges are finalized. They also meet with probate officers to ease the transition into community and reduce recidivism. This is the kind of things that our county actually has, though it's in a different form. We have just a restorative justice program that just deals with assigning, because it, it deals with not like when, it works best at the moment when the victim is just the community, meaning okay. the city itself. Um, that way it's kind of a nebulous, like, you know, it's more you're hurting yourself than anyone in particular, right. especially consensual crimes or crimes like shoplifting. Yeah. After a soft launch this July, nonprofits are already filling the rooms. The restaurants and facilities will be fully operational by September. Too often, when people think of the term public safety, they're thinking of punishment and prisons. This is Zachary Norris, the executive director of the Ella Baker Center. We felt the need for something equally tangible, equally visible, and concrete brick and mortar form. These services need their own dedicated spaces that are designed for them. For Bay Area nonprofits contending with risking rents, rising rents, laying a long-term stake in anything brick and mortar has been difficult. The Yellow Baker Center has occupied nine different office spaces over its 20-year history. Securing an eviction-proof gathering hub could be a transformative for the city. Nor says that the nonprofits that serve it if we're going to have strong communities, we need strong community-centered institutions, Yeah, which rarely exist because it's hard to get your own building. If you have to pay taxes right. on it. Or you have, There's maintenance and all that. The project was funded in part by an anonymous donation of a million. Next City reported and supported with new market tax credits. In its previous incarnations, the building has been a nightclub and a department store. Most recently, it has been filled with a rabbit warren of small shops and cobweb-filled rooms. When the Ella Baker Center and ROC purchased it, they turned to the Oakland-based activist architect, Deanna Van Buren, co-founder and of their architecture and real estate nonprofit, Designing Justice Plus Designing Spaces. Ooh. Van Buren has been has built her career around the idea of a world without prisons. Her firm's past projects include the Near West Side Peacemaking Center in Syracuse, New York, and the Women's Mobile Refuge Center, which will shelter San Francisco women who were recently released from jail or have experienced domestic abuse. It's a it's a form of like right. a trailer, but it's like a nice trailer. Okay. Kind of like a bunch of three tiny homes put together. In 2018, she was the recipient of the University of California's Berkeley Architecture Professorship Prize. One of the biggest dreams of this space is, what would it look like to have a place where everybody in this neighborhood, instead of calling the police, this is a space they come to, Van Buren said, as she took City Lab on a tour of the building. It's an opportunity for folks to work together and talk together and work with nonprofits. Restore Oakland will be the only dedicated hub for restorative justice in the entire U.S. Oh, wow. That's a sad thing. That's the first and only one. Uh, but there will be more in the future. And um, I'll mention that the firm 
has designed a kind of case study because that's okay. what architects do in their spare time. You, you design something that you haven't been commissioned to do. And they design a kind of restorative justice center. So it's almost a replacement for the courthouse. Okay. Um, but it's a place for peace circles and the kind of restorative justice work to take place, which isn't to, to just deconstruct the courthouse aesthetic right. of the bench, the, the judges on high and all that. Because you don't have that stuff anymore. Right. It's not authoritarian. In the city's uh, Temesel neighborhood, the prison abolition group that Angela Davis co-founded, Critical Resistance, has acquired a 7,000-square-foot store that once sold baby goods. It plans to turn it into a real-life Wakanda Institute, according to KQED. Oakland Ceasefire, launched in 2012, uses group violence intervention to reduce gun violence. So a lot of these groups do exist, including one here in Albany. Um, the Amadea County Bar Association credits it, along with more targeted policing by Oakland's police department, with getting Oakland to its lowest number, lowest number of homicides in almost 20 years. Yes. So the bar association, the lawyers have to say, well, the police help too. But yeah. Today, a lot of local rehab work and organizing takes place in homes or in decentralized office buildings scattered around the area, says Ridu Mondi, Restore Oakland's interim executive director. With the heightened risk of immigration enforcement raids, Moby says people have been more reluctant to open their doors. Restore Oakland will offer a safe, collaborative meeting environment for those activists, she says, building on the legacy of the civil rights movement, much of which was planned in the basements of churches and libraries. The center features several meeting rooms on the basement floor. There is something important about knowing you're doing subversive work underground, said Modi. Cause Adjusta, or Just Cause, will operate a housing rights clinic on the first floor. The Ella Baker Center, uh, R. Joy, which is the restorative youth group, and Community Works West have offices on the second. Van Burnham has baked restorative justice principles in the design of Restore Oakland. A room for conflict resolution and action planning has two entrances and two adjacent spaces where people can cool off and speak privately. It's pale, it's pale blue, a color chosen for being calm and soothing. One wall is a chalkboard. On the day I visited, organizers had sketched concentric circles representing the ripple effects of healing on the community. Change the narrative, someone had written in pink capital letter letters. Fostering growth, read another note, a flower blooming beneath it. The restaurant, too, is meant to fulfill a twofold promise, providing more points of connection and giving people pathways to stable work. We're finding that in most of our projects, food is an anchor. Government efforts to reduce mass incarceration have often been tantamount to shifting deck chairs on the Titanic, uh, says the Ella Baker Center's Norris. Anchor monitors and probation have supplemented investments in economic justice and opportunity. Restore Oakland, Norris hopes that the web of resources will get to a more holistic solution. Though he hopes that the model can be replicated across the Bay Area and the county, Restore Oakland's location adjacent to the Fruitvale BART station, deep within East Oakland, is significant. It's at the Fruitvale BART station that a 22-year-old Oscar Grant was killed by a police officer in 09, and around the corner that a new transit village has risen in an effort to stymie gentrification. This is right next to where Oscar Grant was killed. Fruitvale is one of the most diverse neighborhoods with an already really diverse city of Oakland. We think it's a great place to demonstrate that you can do development in the interest of people. But Restore Oakland is not just open to people in the immediate vicinity, because of displacement and migration, the center will serve clients from farther afield. I don't think we're going to define who's part of the Bay or what is Oakland, said Moby. So much that 
of what Oakland is was created by people who were being forced to leave. And last is a correction that the original version stated that the Restored Justice Oakland for Youth and Community Works West would have office space. Only the youth ones will have space. Their Community Works West uses space in the building for a limited time each week. An Anarchist House by Eco Homes and Communities. Recently, I have been exploring what an anarchist house looks like, particularly using the work of Colin Ward. Anarchism is essentially self-organization, people providing for themselves without state intervention. It has multiple variants, and part of its appeal for many is the flexibility with which it can be understood and practiced. Colin Ward was a key advocate for anarchism, especially in Britain, and was particularly interested in housing and architecture. Indeed, he was an architect by training. He argued that anarchism was always present in society, not a utopia in the future. An anarchist society, a society which organizes itself without authority, is always in existence, like a seed beneath the snow. He was interested in fragments of anarchism already in existence and wrote numerous histories tracing anarchist practice. Many years of attempting to be an anarchist propagandist have convinced me that we win over our fellow citizens to anarchists' ideas precisely through drawing upon the common experience of the informal, transient, self-organizing networks of relationships that in fact make the human community possible, rather than through rejecting of existing society as a whole in favor of some future society where some different kind of humanity will live in perfect harmony. David Graper has this point as well, and um, about like that anarchism is like a action and not a um, ideology itself. I also want to mention that I read Colin Ward's book as well, so I have a bunch of notes on it as well. So I'm pretty familiar, but that, that's why I wanted to share, and I knew what to look up okay. as far as like what does a politically oriented architect like sound like? Because otherwise, it, the the Theory and whatever from architecture is very non-political. I mean, sometimes it mentions that it's like if we want democratic spaces, we need flexible spaces, and that's kind of what modernism is attempting to do. Because hmm. uh, otherwise, you're left with palaces where rooms are very particular about what needs to be in there. Right. And to be democratic is to be flexible. Is it basically just have blank rooms and not put certain symbols in there? But that's also counterproductive, too. That's what we found out. Okay. So, in particular, he documented the history of housing of the poor, who often had to reply upon squatting land to make a home, and of plot lands, the self-built unofficial housing, often along the British coast as escapes for silly uh, city dwellers from the 1870s back to the 1940s. For Ward, anarchist housing is a form of liberation. This is achieved primarily through dweller control, that there is housing for all, housing for all needs, and that residents have full control over that housing, be that through direct ownership or other forms of secure tenure. This control is not a form of capitalist exploitative profit-making, an approach to housing rejected by anarchists such as Proudhon by his famous assertion that property is theft. Rather, it is the freedom to have a home and the land required to live. Turner argues that dweller control leads to better and cheaper housing than when provided by the state. 
In providing for these needs, anarchist housing often requires unconventional societal structures, such as sharing homes through multifamily occupation communes and cooperatives. It is also likely to involve combining uses such as reintegrating work and home. This collectivization is also evident in the construction of anarchist houses or the task of construction navigating legal requirements and the cost of purchasing land are all reduced through sharing. It can thus be an act of mutual aid, people mutually supporting and helping each other. In particular, Kropotkin, another famous anarchist, called for housing to reduce the burden of household tasks on women. Instead, offer them liberation from drudgery. This included making the kitchen bigger and central for all to use. What is more, housing should be convenial, built to encourage interaction and to see human behavior and demands. An anarchist house would seek to avoid or subvert any planning restrictions, especially where the basic needs of the people were not being met. Hence, anarchism's strong links with squatting. The anarchist house is very much in the vernacular tradition of using easily available free materials to self-build. Such houses would be maintained and modified, such as extensions, by its occupants as needs changed. The brand defines such houses as being long life, loose fit, low energy, easily adaptable buildings built to last with minimal environmental impact. Long life, loose fit is also a mantra that was used in my architecture school quite a lot. Okay. Yeah. So it wasn't totally just in this anarchist okay. milieu. But yeah, this is generally, this is like a general, I like this essay. It's a general like anarchism in architecture or yeah. what is an anarchist architecture. And it's basically like, yeah, it's, it's not a style. It's a way of doing things. And that's kind of the difference between like, say, just being a punk and wearing punk aesthetics right. and actually doing politics uh i mean there could be a political punk and still wear the leather jacket with all of the symbols on it but it's like you can put on the aesthetic of a goth or an emo or, but you could, you're still just a bougie liberal at the end of the day right the environmental features of anarchist housing are not particularly explicit in Ward's discussions, but many anarchists, such as Murray Bookchin and Henry David Thoreau, I didn't know he was an anarchist, understood there yeah. to be strong parallels between anarchism and environmentalism. This was expressed in housing as being about simplicity, self-sufficiency, and human-scale approaches which reduced human needs while restoring a concern for the environment. In other words, the anarchist house has minimal resource needs, enables interactions with the environment, which in turn allows people to understand their direct environmental implications. So, like, it actually connects you to things. Now, of course, there's still a need for privacy. Right. So, there will be... It's not saying, like, oh, in when there's communism, it's like you can't have your own room. Of course not. It's more like there's there's a big living room, which a lot of middle class people have gravitated towards, having great rooms, having rooms without dividing walls between the kitchen, living, dining. You have great rooms. Now there's there's kind of so a. I live in a studio, so uh -huh. I uh, I live in a great room of my own. <laughs> yeah, and uh, good design for a one person house is like one room with a lot of small nooks. Yeah. Like having a lot of closets that then you put things or you have dedicated spaces where one person can fit in them, whether it's for your bed or a desk or whatever. Now that it's just one room and you have to arrange everything like Tetris blocks. That, uh, oh yeah, I wanted to mention, uh, 
the blog uh, McMansion Hell for kind of a fun and leftist-oriented blog that critiques, analyzes. The writer of McMansion Hell is very good, um, and she's like my age. And she kind of talks about the point of the blog is that McMansions are the kind of quintessential neoliberal typology. It is truly the neoliberal world that it, that creates the McMansion or the type of style that results from people with a good amount of money but no taste. And they're just kind of building with signifiers and just like, oh, of course, the, this big uh, Pringles can tower in my house and lots of you know, just like, just using the symbols of housing and not actually like it doing or meaning anything mm. and just having these absolute like monstrous homes that are impossible to heat or cost thousands to heat are just as modern as, you know, a flat roofed Usonian house, except a Usonian house, meaning a Frank Lloyd Wright one is in fact somewhat, uh, efficient, at least in space, mm. uh, cause it has a, what Frank Lloyd Wright is good for is the pinwheel model, which is where you have a center of the house, like a usually the chimney or a hearth, and then all of the other rooms are organized around that center. Uh, when you have a home that's organized around, like, the TV, then you kind of lose a centering of the family or family li- or life itself. Tiny houses lack a center as well. Hmm. So, or, or some modern houses are that are kitschy. So I don't really like those as well. There should be some kind of center, but so it is. It could be a pole or a column. Uh, is there more of that? Um, no, that. So there's this other article I have that is also kind of a similar long lines, and I don't know if it repeats similar things. No, it would just it just refers to Colin Ward again. Uh, it's called Struggles for Space, Anarchism, Architecture, and Anarchitecture, uh, written by Julius Gersh back uh, four years ago. There is no art without architecture for are what most of what we call fine arts housed. Indeed, the struggle against authority could be seen to include a struggle against art and architecture. But if entomology may serve as an initial guide, it is far too inadequate a source to be able to understand art. So this is more a theory heavy. But I, I just want to say a bit more on uh, to to expand on what you just read with the anarchist house that a more politically driven or communalistic architecture is one where we are sharing land, so it's communalist. Oh yeah, I wanted to bring that up. Let's actually talk about for a short bit. The term communalism hmm. is used as a shorthand to merge a bunch of other tendencies that we basically all fit in. Right. You and me. This is from the Libertarian Socialist Caucus of the mm-hmm. Libertarian Party. And so this is from a post by, I can't pronounce that, unfortunately. Communalism is a synthesis of left anarchism, Marxism, syndicalism, and radical ecology. Communalism is a political philosophy and economic system that integrates communal ownership, confederations of highly localized independent communities. Bookchin, a prominent libertarian socialist, defined the communalism he developed as a theory of government or a system of government in which independent communes, meaning communities that are organized independently of themselves, participate in a federation, as well as the principles and practice of communal ownership. 
The term government does not apply, imply acceptance of a state or a top-down hierarchy. While originally conceived as a form of social anarchism, meaning anarchism that just doesn't isn't like leave me the hell alone, or I'm just going to do my own punk thing, he later developed communalism as a separate ideology practice, which incorporates what he saw as the most beneficial elements of a left anarchism, Marxism, syndicalism, and radicalology, bringing them all together. Politically, communalists advocate a stateless, classless, moneyless, decentralized, important society, consisting of a network of directly democratic citizens' assemblies, kind of like the GA of Occupy, but thus contained in, within a commune, so there is a boundary between who is participating and who isn't. Okay. As well as in individual communities or cities organized in this kind of fashion, confederal fashion. This primary method used to achieve this is a called libertarian municipalism, mentioned in the show before, which involves the establishment of face-to-face institutions, which are to grow and expand confederally with the goal of eventually replacing the nation-state. Unlike anarchists, communalists are not opposed in principle to taking part in electoral politics, specifically municipal elections, as long as candidates are libertarian socialist and anti-statist in policy. Oh, no, this this itself is a simple wiki article on that. So this is kind of the politics that I envision um, out of the show, because it blends a bunch of things together and it doesn't kind of leave things out or it leaves out what has been practiced long enough to know that it's not really successful right? Uh, or leading us towards better organizing. This also leads into maybe some of the plans that our local Green Party will have, uh, besides okay. maybe some of the media campaign that, like, you're going to do, or in races that, like, we just couldn't find a good candidate for, or we would ask people that we thought would be a good candidate, and right. they wouldn't be able to do it, or they weren't interested. Then... Uh, but, but the goal might be because we've a positive development and that, that we'll touch on in our strategy episodes will be that we have coalesced more of a left wing, uh, consensus on doing actionable activities right. versus just arguing about what our differences are and why we don't, aren't doing the same thing. Mm-hmm. <laughs> uh, why, why are we doing our electoral elections this way, not this way? You know, our revolution versus Green Party, uh, other socialist groups versus the DSA. And, but what we can do together is maybe run an independent candidate for one council seat, kind of do what Socialist Alternative in Seattle with Kavada Sawant did, uh, which pulls the entire conversation leftward. Um, it creates not a one particular person, but a campaign to work on and that if with with 20 or so dedicated people we can actually make it happen otherwise we're running five races where maybe each person gets 15 percent of the vote or um because when we know when we put it all on all in one race we get really really close usually we like lose by one percent or something maybe we can actually and that and that was the case in locally with the green party in the aughts, they would run really close campaigns, still not win, but, you know, thanks to winner take all, but yeah. really, really close. Sometimes it, we lost by the affidavit ballots counted after election day. Wow. And that was for a county legislative seat, which is, which is almost the size of a ward. It's like 6,000 people. 
But like that, that might be what we do this year. We have local elections. Um, I still feel like we should have at least some kind of placeholder for mayor, but, um, because I really enjoyed doing it last time for the most part, and especially if I actually, you know, don't have opposition to doing it or people hating on me. Yeah. Cause, cause then there's no, like, what, what Biden in office is maybe, like, heat will be down on, on leftist politics of, like, you're just messing things up. You're making the left look bad. Because, see, counter to this whole, like, we're getting rid of Trump, there's also the Dems. The centrist Dems are like, no more leftism. No right. more de- defund the police. We lost good people. You know, they lost seats or they, they didn't gain seats. Basically all the CIA Democratic candidates lost. Right. Because in their districts, uh, they were, you know, the Dems, and the Dems are Marxists now. <laughs> they were defunding the police and socialized health care. And we don't like that, even though when asked about Medicaid for all, we were for it. So that's happening the same time as, like, this whole, we're going to win more Democratic Socialists in the Democratic Party. And we're going to keep arguing. We're going to keep arguing. That's a mistake. And we have fears that, like, say, DSA will try to temp- temper what our leftist coalition will seek to do. But at the same time, uh, they're all comrades, too. And they all know what's up. And I'm friends with the head of the uh, Capital Region DSA on Facebook. So I'm excited to yeah, see. Yeah, so am I, of course. Yeah, I'm excited to see maybe they'll work with us this time. Well, they, we've already had me uh, a meeting, and we'll have one one a month. Um, the last one had 25 people in it nice. because it was zoom calls. You know, we don't need to have any one, you know, for like, we can't, we couldn't even agree on where to meet or something, you know, <laughs> or, uh, or, you know, it's like, no, no, that's not a neutral place. Yeah. I, I don't know if this is spilling tea. I guess it would count as spilling tea. The, and having our own space, you know, a group of DSAers want, have bought a, bar in Troy and they want to make it a social club space, kind of a second social justice center. But, you know, we have some nays, yeah, some naysayers in that the way they're doing is exclusionary. It's all DSA people. They're trying to say that it's for any kind of leftist, but it's like, well, it's, they want to, it's also a former bar and they want to keep it as a bar. And that's exclusionary to people who want to drink and don't think that our social spaces should be around drinking culture. That's, that's a very fair criticism. Mm-hmm. And that it's, it's a club for this particular group and they're fundraising yeah. for it. And, uh, it's not really what we need or that money, like the, the, how much, how much are they raising? 40,000 could be spent better or for different things. There was a group in Troy called Margination that were a group of anarchists from Philadelphia that had the scheme of fundraising from tech bros in Silicon Valley really rich ones, um, who want to do socially productive things but don't know how, and they don't actually, they're pretty hierarchical in all their thinking because uh, they're technocrats, authoritarians in their own way. And uh, But the idea was to kind of get their money and spend it on building anarchism in Troy hmm. um, by basically developing property and renting it for, like, base cost of maintenance, which would mean, like, rent that's 100 Fifty dollars or two hundred dollars versus you know, hundred, five hundred, six hundred, seven hundred, and also uh, they have plans to buy a garage and turn it into an incubator space, uh, which Troy has plenty of. 
they didn't, uh, they fell apart for social reasons, like a lot of anarchist, uh, cliques do. Um, they have a little bit of social problems in their social dynamic and then it all falls apart. And that's the problem. Because it wasn't, it was more of a club than an, uh, organization. And that's kind of maybe how the John Connolly clubhouse will feel as well. And that's a concern. And that, and that just relates to space and having our own architecture. Um, but really we want a big community center where we can have conferences and things. Uh, but what kind of building can do that besides, I mean, churches are available, but like they need to be subdivided if we're going to have something that's a center. Right. Like this, um, well, former department store. So I guess we're like we need to build like a, or not a build, buy a, a three-story building or something. I mean, the, the social justice center is three floors with offices on the third and second, but okay. they're not fully utilized and they're, it's not a large building. It's pretty narrow. And that's why it's not really good for conferences or more than a gathering of at most 30. The last piece, um, is kind of not a different scale of things. It's from Strong Towns. Uh, I, when I was looking up the thing on the taxes and local taxes and stuff, this came up uh, in the kind of like, you might like this article too. And this is all from Small Towns. It's written by their executive director, I think. And it's called The Local Case for Reparations. Uh, and I think he lives in Kansas City. As with many public conversations in 2020, it is difficult to get past the loudest and most obnoxious voices. I keep reminding myself that I am hearing them precisely because they are the loudest and most obnoxious. To not let that reality distort my searching for deeper truths. I remind myself, but I'm human, and so I struggle. We may have to struggle together here. I will acknowledge having a lot of difficulty, because I guess a white guy talking about reparations. So this is kind of his, like, I know this is tough. I'm not really the right person to, you know, talk about this, but I need to have a take. The word reparation, and, he, and, he, and then he does the, like, and, oh, yeah, and basic essay writing of, like, in debate, where it's, like, the word X, this, the dictionary definition says this. Right. Uh, that's, yeah, so I'll skip that. For some... Cash payments as a reparation seem to offer a pain-free solution to dealing with all the nuance and complexity. If we're going to give trillions to global corporations, pretending that in the next year Americans are going to start flying for pleasure or booking time on cruise ships, <laughs> why can't we give a couple trillion to African Americans to make up for decades of mistreatment? In that mindset, reparations are reduced to a transaction, with an aura almost that of associated with Catholic practice of purchasing indulgences to lessen one's time in purgatory. I guess you could say that vast federal subsidies are like trying to reduce our economic purgatory. <laughs> Please, capitalists, grant us your blessings. Almost. Maybe it's my Catholic upbringing, of course, but the idea of restoring someone of righteous or past wrong and making them whole again necessarily includes some penance. It includes some sacrifice by the restorer as acknowledgement, so of course then he's going into like punishment or whatever, right. but... Okay, but these are philosophical concerns. Uh, our friends at the Data Analytics from Urban 3 have done extensive research into the past and present financial state of the Kansas City region. This dramatic work includes a series of maps analyzing the impacts of redlining. Not only do these maps provide a detailed picture of the damage that has been done, it also presents an opportunity for Kansas City, of course it does, and other cities like it, to engage in its own reparations program. So, Reparations on the federal level, just like any actual kind of big legislation, let's kind of assume that none of that is actual if we're going to happen. 
The system, the liberal, neoliberal system just cannot actually do it. That is why um, we are stuck with leaders that are more incensed with the process of things and not reacting boldly to our crises. And that's kind of the generational fight that is occurring, if you're going to view things that way, which the generations guys have framed or predicted, even that a crisis would occur in uh, 2020-21, which is eerie. So they can be right uh, a good, a good amount of the time. It's just how they're right, which is, you know, we're trying to help marketers and how they study things. So uh, lots of redlining maps. I think if you know anything about redlining, I don't think we need to re, uh, oh, yeah. review that. I think a lot of good educational content exists for redlining already. But what could a local representation of reparations look like? Now, this is from a liberal technocratic point of view, I'll mention. So, but it's, it's, it's a good, it might be a good starting point for what can practically be done within capitalism. While well, we have the system we have, how to build the new world in the shell of the old, as some radicals put. To put wealth in the hands of the people who live in redlined neighborhoods, two things must happen. First, the neighborhood must experience investment, an inflow of capital that stays within the neighborhood. Second, the capital must be allowed to accrue to the people who are already there. It can't result in their displacement. So number one is investing in the disinvested. For example, in the Bryant Elementary neighborhood in Kansas side of the river, there are 732 vacant parcels. This neighborhood was redlined into the D zone, which is the worst. Added together, these vacant properties create less than 300000 in taxable value. Now, a problem that this writer makes is that he keeps couching everything as in, like, economically productive property. He kind of, it's it's the liberal, the neoliberal way of looking at markets, of looking at things as commodities and markets, where, like, what's good for people is the investment and money flow and right. property being valuable, as if, you know, that's all it takes. And that's what that's what allows people to have higher incomes, right? Or something like that, and not just higher taxes. Um, so he keeps couching like the good results would be that the remaining 867 occupied lots in the D zone create 14 and a half million in total taxable value, productivity of 107,000 per acre, which is extremely low for the region. If the vacant parcels were developed. Even at the modest levels of the rest of the neighborhood, it would add over 12 million to the tax base. But of course, what does that matter to black people? Right. So I'm like, why is he talking about tax income here? Like, it, it, it does, it's good for the city government, but it's like you're looking at things from the state's perspective because that's who he's arguing to. So it's really just right. a matter of writing for your audience. Strong towns is directed at County and city planners and policymakers, not at people in the neighborhood, not people who have been redlined right. and who are expected to organize for these things. But you see, these things aren't going to happen unless those people organize for it. And he's arguing for, like, from the technocrat's point of view, of we just need the people who make the policy, you know, the people in right. charge to do the right policies. Completely ignoring all the material reasons why the good policies haven't been done already. 
because it wouldn't be obvious to just invest. Right. Why haven't these neighborhoods been invested in? Is it really just the redlining? Come on, man. Yeah. You know, surely we're not as racist as before, but again, mentioning Fannie Mae, Freddie Mac, and that, like, no, it's been continuous. But here are some of the things that, like, Albany has also been doing to try to, in its equity agenda. So we can also kind of say this is, these are good steps, but also there's lacking in there. I'm not sure how one would legally determine who qualifies for its assistance. I'll leave that to experienced lawyers. <laughs> but I would give anyone in Kansas City who qualifies the following. A free lot, start with those in tax foreclosure. We already do this with the land bank. When that inventory, but it's also quasi-public. Anyway, but it, there's a lot of positive things been done through the land bank. People have been given properties that are in foreclosure, and they've been re- rehabbing them. What? But they're only given to those who have the f- savings to do the rehab. So that's kind of one of those catch-22s, but some people do have 20000 saved up or something like that. Anyway, uh, the city could acquire the remaining lots in the neighborhood. Uh, they are cheap. Or partner with one of the many great community foundations in the area to purchase them. Uh, but here's something that the city of Albany hasn't done, which is waive sewer and water connection fees to any public assessments currently due on the property. Interesting. One idea was that in order to ha- allow someone the possibility of rehabbing, say, a vacant property, is for the city or the county uh, to create a lien on the property so that then the person or entity can put sweat equity in right. to pay off the lien. Because you need that investment of capital. Otherwise, where is the capital coming from? Now, in a way, waiving fees is a sort of capital. It's something that it's, it's basically a tax break, but completely necessary considering if you're putting even a trailer on a vacant property, the sewer and water pickup uh, connection is the most expensive part. Really? Yeah, it's like thousands of dollars. Uh, a dollar amount to go towards, const- but here's, here's, here's the other thing that would be more of a city loan. A dollar amount to go towards construction or a down payment on a phys- finished home, an amount that would be recovered in a decade, something like thirty grand. This amount should vest over a 10-year period of time, so that investment will not only build wealth but encourage stability. This all feels like stuff the city would bend over backwards to do for an outside investor coming in looking to build a hotel or condominium. We know in Kansas City those are generally bad investments with negative returns. In contrast, this is a positive one. A kind that not only makes good on the promises of a community, but actually pays off financially. Hmm. That's because if you get vacant lots developed and get the neighborhood moving in a positive financial direction, never mind a social one, right. uh, all the property values are going to increase. It's just, it's just the assumption that if everyone's a homeowner, it's like that's good, that's what makes good community. Right. Even, ignoring the fact that people in suburbia is, are usually isolated and miserable too. Yeah. It's, it's a general societal problem, regardless of income or property investment. So the, so the problems are beyond just where the money has been going. That's nearly 30 million additional well, real wealth that would now be accrued to people living in one of the redlined areas. Millions more than what the city was, has invested by that point. That's a legitimate down payment on reparations, one that can be repeated across similar neighborhoods throughout the region. I think it's a mistake to frame what would just be good policy for the common good as reparations. Yeah considering reparations the whole point of it is that it would be extra justice it would be extra spending or extra wealth uh handed back uh or the wealth of the system you know the billions that are in the in wall street 
To credibly call this reparations, however, the community is going to need to put their heart into it. That means redirecting city staff and city's capital investment programs, which Albany has, uh, so that these distressed neighborhoods get at least their share of public investment, perhaps more. Again, I'll reiterate, in terms of sheer investment for the community, these neighborhoods are distressed assets ready to explode in value. So he's talking like a bond trader here, and I hate it. Keeping wealth in the neighborhood would uh, mean zone changes, incremental development to prevent gentrification, meaning that uh, a vacant lot gets a home or a business. A single house can then add another unit or become a duplex. To broadly build wealth, we want the neighborhood to experience the positive feedback that comes along with rising land values. Other things include grants, a housing grant program like the one used in Oswego, New York, in which grants for home repairs and facade improvements are made contingent on the participation of a critical mass of neighbors on a single block. So meaning like no one gets it unless a majority on a block are going to get them. I don't like that, but I know why they do it, because basically they would give out the grant to, say, one person. They would fix up their facade, but then no one else around them would, and though the block would still look bad. So it's like there's no point. So we might as well, it sounds like we might as well give grants to everyone, but of course everyone on the block needs to want it and want to do the repairs. Uh, Otherwise you're just mandating that everyone do the repairs. But it's like, that's quite authoritarian, but it's also like people should want to do those things. See, that's kind of where our culture is at with the individuality thing, is that you have the problem of, People either being incentivized, either not having the means or not to, say, do X, like fix up their stoop. Then there's the motivation to do it, which either has to be like, we're going to fine you if you don't. Right. Or, you know, or you're out, yeah, you're against codes and and so on. So you put in the codes that like your facade needs to be repainted every 20 years, something like that. Hmm. Or the stoop needs to be repaired so that people aren't tripping on it. And then the last thing about, Retaining the wealth so it doesn't just get sucked up by big corporations, which is right. what normally would happen. Tax increment financing. So while there are certainly more ideas that a city committed to making reparations could bring to the table for the benefit of all, the three-decade commitment to recycle the tax increment gained back into the neighborhood for better parks, schools, sidewalks, and other neighborhood-directed scaffold for prosperity. It's only a modest expansion of standard incentives routinely offered developers. So we're basically pointing out that it has to be part of the policy that the rising of value is not for its own sake, but like the right, he keeps mentioning the tax value because then it's through the government, through the state, that then this new tax value, this new, you know, community value is then transferred back into public goods, which were never built or invested in the first place. Mm. Why can't the city do that first? Well, usually they say, why do we build a nice park for um, a community, a neighborhood that's half vacant or something like that? Right. Or or with people who don't have the means or the free time to even use the park because um, right. they do their jobs or they're working three jobs. Okay. I think we've reached the yeah. end of the show. Do you want to do the end? Uh, sure. Yeah. First, my pro- or our profound listen or thanks for listening, which is a skill as important as talking. 
So we plan to listen to any constructive feedback, ideas for the show, or topics or stories that you'd like to hear discussed, and send them to us on uh, social media via Facebook or Twitter at Three Lefts. This program is made as part of an independent community radio, so support us materially, along with many other donation or membership to WCAA-LP at GrandStarts.org. Grand, Grand Street Arts. Grand uh, Grand Street Art. Oh, that's what it says. Or, or support us with your time by telling others you believe would be interested. Uh, liking and sharing our pages as you do. This episode and the last 10 are broadcast on most podcasting apps, but a full archive of the podcast, along with notes and info about us, are found at 3lefts.news. Of course, the most important thing is to put the ideas, thinking, and projects talked about here into practice yourself. Be well, keep it rad, and keep waving the flags of the 3 lefts. Bye, everybody. <laughs>